Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. New Statesman podcast, we discuss the results of the Lib Dem leadership election, the new money available to those self-isolating, and you ask us, are U-turns good? So the results of the Lib Dem leadership election are through and we're recording the afternoon after they came out. So Alva, what happened and what does it mean? So it was a, a quite muted affair. I note I only I only watched the live stream. I think only about ten or so people attended the real thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a closed event, so just a, a few sort of black apprentice style boardroom chairs for the two opponents and and their supporters and a couple of key Lib Dem figures to to watch. So it was announced that. Ed Davey won by a quite considerable margin over Leila Moran, which did, I think, come t- as a surprise and a bit of a disappointment to Leila Moran's team. Mm-hmm. Ed Davey ha- has been the favourite all along. There was polling that we reported on in January by YouGov, which showed that at that point, people hadn't even declared whether they were going to be standing or not. But in a prospective field of Leila Moran, Ed Davey and Daisy Cooper, who didn't end up running at all. Ed Davey got over 50% of first preferences. So he was coming from a very strong base, but that was obviously quite a while ago. There hasn't been any more recent polling. And I think it was felt that Leila Moran had put in, you know, quite an energetic, interesting campaign. There was just some kind of anecdotal evidence from people on Twitter and so on that certain members had maybe initially supported Ed, but were changing their votes to Layla, which is the, the trend you would have needed to see for her to to shift that strong footing from January. I mean, I was sort of like texting other interested political journalists who love the Lib Dems earlier <laughs> in the week. And, mm-hmm. and we were all kind of, we, I think, have enjoyed this contest because it hasn't been that obvious which way it was going to go. And the the feeling from both camps was that it was going to be quite close. In the end, it wasn't really close at all. Um, that was a very, very decisive win for Ed Davey. In terms of what it means and what happened, he made a quite interesting, punchy acceptance speech where I think he really decided to own a message of this party is doing badly and we need to change. I get it and we're going to do that. And, um, you know, he said that the Lib Dems need to wake up and smell the coffee. And he announced that he's going to be embarking on a listening exercise across the country. He specifically, which I thought was interesting, specifically addressed himself to Remainers and Brexiteers, as well as people who like hadn't cared and just wanted it over with. A really decisive break. 
with the messaging at the last election where they were the Stop Brexit party. They're really drawing a line under that and they're trying to make themselves relevant to the lives of ordinary people. He was making the case that at a local level, they are seen as a party that can deliver for ordinary people, but then that isn't happening at a national level and they, and they need to change people's minds on that and he's committed to doing so, which was interesting because my read on it has always been that obviously the Lib Dems are not in a great position with only 11 MPs and they're, you know, they're trailing in the polls at only 6%, but those are the sort of the headline figures and underneath that, They've moved from being second place in about 37 seats at 2017 to second place in 91 seats now. So they're like on quite a strong footing to contest the next general election if they play their cards right. And they're also hugely advantaged by a more popular Labour leader, you know, provided he continues on that trajectory. So I don't think it looks as bleak as Ed Davies' speech seemed to suggest but I think he was quite determined to own that that message and that that it's not going to be same old same old even though I think he was considered a sort of continuity candidate having been a cabinet minister in the coalition period that even though he's a, a sort of veteran Lib Dem that he's going to turn around the party's fortunes and represent a change of direction for them. I think that's really interesting what you say about continuity candidate, because for someone like me who only started out in political journalism during the coalition years, covering the coalition and the Lib Dems fortunes within that, when I hear the name Ed Davey, I don't really think about the sort of more recent version of Ed Davey that that lost his seat and then won it back again and has sort of launched himself back into kind of Lib Dem leadership life, if you will. I think about the Ed Davey who was a, you know, he was a cabinet secretary. He was someone who got hammered on question time and he was, you know, very much someone who I I still see in my mind as someone who was part of that Tory Lib Dem government and, and I can't separate him from that. And it's interesting, isn't it, that... Um, that that's one of the Lib Dems sort of biggest weaknesses, but also like you say, it can it can represent one of its strengths as well because it's a sign of experience. And also, as you've written in your piece about the leadership election result, it's important for the Liberal Democrats to establish themselves as sort of the main challenger to the Conservatives because of the number of target seats that they have that are made up that way in which they could win over the more sort of moderate Conservative voters who might be wavering because of the Boris Johnson-led government. So it's important to have someone who has integrity among those people. But then I wonder if, you know, could this lead to splits within the Lib Dems? Because Leila Moran probably represented a better hope for the Lib Dems for winning over those disillusioned, maybe those who have drifted away from from. Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and, and feel a little bit politically homeless and might be tempted by by Keir Starmer next time round. What happens with that challenge for the Lib Dems now that they've chosen a sort of coalition era leader and seem to be tacking more to that path? Could there be splits within the Lib Dems? You know, are there, are there Moranites who are <laughs> spitting feathers over this result? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think you're 100% right that a huge proportion of Liberal Democrat members have joined since the coalition and since the Brexit vote. But you can see from this result that even, you know, even given that sort of change in the demographics, they still overwhelmingly voted for Ed Davey. But I think it's true that Leila Moran's support base would very much have included the people who wanted a more decisive break from coalition, the kinds of people who profoundly disagreed with 
you know, the party's support for things like the bedroom tax and who we would just like to draw a line under that and have a leader who comes across as fresher and more radical and more lefty. And in terms of, I think, particularly social values, you know, they would say that 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 chunk of people who'd supported Jeremy Corbyn are ripe for the taking, that all along those people weren't really socialists or Corbynites, they were liberals, and that you could make a case to those people that they were in the wrong party and pull them over, and that Leila Moran is the person to do that. But I think what's interesting is that actually, like in terms of Leila Moran and Ed Davey's own positions on this kind of thing, they're not that different. Ed Davey is mm. the living embodiment of an argument that I think Leila Moran would broadly agree with, that if the Lib Dems are, are to be sensible about their long-term prospects, then you need to accept that they're always going to be the smaller party, unless there's some kind of miracle for them. They're always going to be the smaller party if they go into government and mm. they're going to have to do some kind of unpopular things, but that they should be kind of valued as a kind of moderating force. And I say Ed Davey is the embodiment of that because, you know, he made a big part of his leadership pitch around the way he secured a tripling of renewable energy funding in coalition that he took on George Osborne, as he put it, and, and won that big concession which has been a big part of the UK's green strategy in the past decade or so. Mm. And that you can look at the coalition government and see all the failures of it. But the, the argument is that the Liberal Democrats were able to sort of dilute the worst of conservatism in, in that government and prevent certain bad things and improve some, some other things. And that they, you know, that they are a force that you want to have in government, which is, I think, always a difficult argument for small parties in any country in any political system to own because they always end up being kind of basically screwed over by the bigger party but I think that's what he represents I don't think Leila Moran would disagree with that very much but I did see it suggested today that it was a shame that she wasn't able to deliver a speech for you know a sort of concession speech she did release a video afterwards but there probably will have been younger Leila supporters who would have wanted to hear from her and people who aren't necessarily big Ed Davey fans who want to be mobilized and reassured that there's still a place for them and I mean I, I would expect that Leila Moran will play a huge role in the Lib Dems under Ed Davey I mean she might be I don't know and this isn't based on any sourcing but I wouldn't be surprised if she was just made deputy leader or certainly I think she'll be a very prominent spokesperson for the party because she's one of their best media performers but yeah I mean I think I think probably among the party's politicians and local councillors and things I don't think that there's any risk of a split but I think you are right that there are some members who would feel like much closer to Leila Moran's vision and will need to be persuaded a bit. So in other news, workers on low incomes in parts of England where there are high rates of coronavirus are going to be able to claim up to basically £13 a day if they have to self-isolate. I know she's been covering this story what is your take on this? Well, I've actually been covering this story in a sense since the very beginning of coronavirus because 
some of the first interviews I did, which were with cleaning staff and cleaners in hospitals and offices and other types of places who were really worried about catching the virus because obviously they're most exposed to people's germs because they're, they're the ones who are sort of tasked with killing germs. So they were most exposed to it, but also they were also some of the workers who were most likely to be in positions where they couldn't afford to miss one week as it was back then or two weeks of work if you were in the household of someone who was infected because either they were entitled to statutory sick pay but it wasn't high enough to live on because statutory sick pay as I think we've spoken about on this podcast before is only £95.85 a week or they weren't entitled to statutory sick pay because of the way that their contract works you know some of them are agency workers are on zero hours contracts and they might not meet the threshold which makes you eligible for the statutory sick pay so you only really have benefits to turn to in in that case and if you're not already on universal credit then you know if you apply for it fresh it takes five weeks to come in and that's you know that takes you long beyond your quarantine period so really the incentive to stay at home wasn't there from the very beginning and we've seen this problem play out time and time again you know we we did a report with the data team a while ago on how it was proved that in care homes that hired more agency staff or didn't have sick pay for for their workers then there were higher spreads of the disease so you can see how it's had a real life impact on the spread of the virus not helping people financially to stay at home and the government really hadn't sort of picked up on this. I mean, from the start, they were being scrutinised for it. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was asked on question time in March, could you live on £95.85 a week if you had to self-isolate? And he said no. So, you know, <laughs> there's the knowledge that it's not enough and it's always been there, but they haven't done anything about it until now. And actually what they're doing now is not really enough because the money that they're offering to low-paid workers who can't work from home and have to self-isolate is basically the same rate and in marginally lower than the rate of statutory sick pay. So £13 a day, you know, it's not that's not enough to live on. So although it's being kind of billed as an incentive to help people self-isolate, it's not really any incentive at all because it's just the same as what's already on offer. And politicians, you know, opposition politicians have been quick to point that out. It's going to be unveiled in as a trial in some places in the northwest next week. And already Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester has said, you know, it goes nowhere near far enough. People need full pay to be able to stay at home. And also the leader of Pendle Borough Council actually called it a slap in the face at the rate that they're offering. So I do think it's sort of an attempt for the government to try and engage with this problem. But it's too late and it's also nowhere near facing up to the task. And it sort of suggests that they still don't really understand that there are some people who just cannot afford to miss work for 10 days or two weeks and who have people in their households who cannot afford to do that either. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I feel like when we were discussing the plans to scrap Public Health England on the podcast last week, I think you can probably hear, if you listen back to that, a real like genuine attempt on my part to try to understand at least where the government is coming from on on that one mm. and I think you can hear me struggle slightly and it's kind of the same with this in that I'm not really expecting you to be able to provide an answer Anush but I just don't really understand why as you've put it so well there's there is a problem that we're kind of failing to provide the economic conditions to allow people to quarantine and self-isolate in the way that we really need them to. 
if they have symptoms, but also if they're returning from abroad. You know, the whole discourse the whole time has been about how low statutory sick pay is, as well as also like issues around eligibility for that. I just don't really understand how eventually they would bring in an attempt at addressing this problem, but the amount of money would be £13 a day, which is about the same as statutory sick pay anyway. And, you know, Mm. even if you look at Mm -hmm. like how the, how that figure compares, like the national living, like the national minimum wage or the living wage for like an eight hour day would be closer to £70 per day, depending on your exact age. Yeah, it's, it's so much lower. It's not really clear to me how anyone could survive off that. There's no there's no good question coming here. It's just me sort of expressing my bafflement <laughs> at the way this like just doesn't really seem to at all be sufficient to address the problem. That I mean, if you were unlikely to self-isolate before because you couldn't afford it, are you any more likely to now if you're going to be given up to £182 for the entire self-isolation period? Well, you know, I I don't blame you for sounding baffled because it is baffling. I think for the government, their argument would be that this money is going towards people who are already getting money from the state to support them. So universal credit or people on the working tax credits, they wouldn't literally be on £13 a day because they'd have this other money as well from the benefit system. So that would be one argument on their part. And another argument that you often hear from the government about the rate of statutory sick pay in this country is that it's much lower than our European equivalents. And that's partly justifiable because we have free healthcare at the point of use. So we have that, which is almost, you know, which which sort of is supposed to partly make up for the for the low rate of sick pay that, that you're paid if you have to take time off work. So those are probably the arguments that they'd give. But I don't think that those arguments really make sense in this very specific circumstance where you are told last minute, drop everything, you have to stay at home, no more hours to work for you. And because you're a low paid worker on on benefits already, you probably don't have that many savings. I mean, you can't claim universal credit um, if you have above a certain level of savings. So you probably don't have much of a financial contingency. So what are you thinking then in that scenario? Are you thinking... I feel comfortable getting nowhere near the amount of money that I'd earn if I carried on working for two weeks to stay at home? Or do you think I can't afford it? I'm going to carry on working. Otherwise, I'm going to let my family down and myself down, which, you know, could also be damaging to to your health. So, you know, there's a lot of moral dilemmas that people will be facing. But ultimately, if they can't afford it, they won't be incentivized to do it. So I do think that it's a mistake not to engage with the problem properly and just kind of throw the equivalent of statutory sick pay at the problem doesn't really make sense to me in this scenario. It's just another bit of proof that the government isn't really torn between the nation's health and the health of the economy because these people are often the people who we rely on for keeping the nation working when everyone's at home. So, you know, they're putting people's livelihoods as well as their lives at risk. It also, I think probably says quite a lot about how the test and trace program is going that this measure is being brought in at this stage because the thing that has struck me with all of these different announcements on quarantines for people returning from foreign countries where there have been higher coronavirus case rates the thing that's really struck me 
is that the government is very, very happy to bring in these last minute quarantines. You get like some annoyed people having to drive back from France quickly or whatever. But ultimately, I think it's it's clear to them. And I think it's probably clear to, to most people who, who sort of follow politics that there's kind of no political downside to be to being seen to be quick to act on those sorts of things, to to look decisive and on the front foot and doing whatever it takes to stop the virus. And for all that it, ha- it has frustrated some holidaymakers or people who have maybe saved a lot to go on holiday, they've handled the politics of that quite well. But you only need to think about it for a second to see that they're doing the easy politics of it and none of the hard politics where they weren't really providing the financial incentive to actually make sure that people quarantine so you know they, they weren't providing them with a you know a decent level of statutory sick pay for example some people are falling through the the gaps of that statutory sick pay anyway but they also weren't you know having testing upon arrival and also I think you know anecdotally it's quite clear that lots of people who've been asked to quarantine just don't and there's no really robust system to find them in theory you can be fined a thousand pounds for refusing to quarantine if you're required to but in practice you just get a ring on your mobile you can say oh yeah I'm in my house I've been here the whole time and you could be anywhere and you know and plenty of people also report that they have you know haven't been contacted by the team that checks up on quarantine. So the government wasn't putting in any of the serious infrastructure in place to make sure that the quarantining was happening. And I think that now they're kind of conceding slightly on this. I think that that really speaks to the fact that not not high enough numbers of contacts being contacted through test and trace are choosing to isolate. I mean, it's even kind of there in some of the wording from Matt Hancock in interviews this morning. You know, he talks about how... NHS test and trace is almost reaching 80% of contacts, which is the the level that you basically have to to get for a test and trace system Mm. to be remotely functional. They're almost there. And and he talks about how the extra support will help get, you know, get the last few percentages in his words, that this is basically, I think, a tacit acknowledgement from the government that by failing to provide adequate support for people who are asked to quarantine, they haven't really been able to get test and trace up up and running as robustly as they could have. I mean, there are other problems with test and trace, but the way the, the the financial support isn't there has been a big one. And this is just this is just an acknowledgement from them that that aspect of it has has been failing. I think absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right because it was only last week that. Uh... Rishi Sunak was suggesting there was no need to change the system for people who have to self-isolate. So, you know, like you say, I think the 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 reading is fairly clear that they need to do a little bit more to incentivise more people to, to self-isolate for the system to work. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. This is actually not a question. It's more of a uh, discussion point. Thanks for that. It says, U-turns look bad, but actually they're good. Discuss. And I thought this was actually quite an interesting proposition because the government gets criticised a lot by its opponents for U-turning a lot. But usually it's U-turning to the positions that its opponents have been pushing them for and prefer. So what's the best way of dealing with a government like this time, which like this one, which is flip-flopping all over the place? If Stephen were here, we know that he would be making his case that actually a lot of polling suggests the public doesn't really judge a government that U-turns on things if it's U-turning to the right policy, you know, in general people are actually fine with that. It's kind of human. And as you say, it tends to function as a kind of corrective to to a previously bad policy. And people are kind of okay with that. You know, newspapers make a big thing of U-turns, but in general, they're not very politically damaging. And also probably good for a healthy democracy that that in cases where things have been got wrong, people don't double down on them. But I feel like in the in the current context, it is different because I, I've lost count of the number of U-turns that we've seen from this government in recent weeks and months. But, you know, the most recent one was on the advice in England on the wearing of masks in schools. We were told that there was insufficient evidence for wearing them in schools. And then now the, the advice has been updated that in hotspot areas, so where there have been higher levels of coronavirus, students will be encouraged to wear them slash will have to wear them in communal areas where that's appropriate. So not in classrooms, but in in corridors and so on. And I mean, I think you could have seen that U-turn coming a mile away. (laughs) And there have been so many other ones, not least on on A-level results and on free school meals, the Marcus Rashford campaign. And I think that it speaks to a different problem to the normal U-turn problem because there are just so many of them. And it's like we've said before on this podcast, Anoush, it's a party management Mm. problem as much as anything else, that basically it's not the problem of of U-turning per se, but the fact that there have been so many recently points to a kind of a high level of avoidable error and that really just flows from an administration and a team in Downing Street that doesn't really listen to its backbenchers or even really that much to its own cabinet ministers that we know that Downing Street receives at least daily polling on public attitudes towards certain things. And Dominic Cummings, but also the wider team in Downing Street who, you know, are in many cases veterans of of Vote Leave and other campaigns that have relied Mm. heavily on data they're, they're all well known for being, they pride themselves on being in touch with the public mood and using data and polling 
and focus groups to really finally attune themselves to opinion in the wider public. So the, the kind of conventional route where you would have your ear to the ground through your MPEs, the people who are on the front line, who sit in their concerts, their surgeries, or, or now, you know, via Zoom surgeries, meet with a lot of their constituents and hear their concerns, who have to be in touch with their local communities to make sure that they are delivering for their constituents and, you know, not alienating their base of voters. Those MPs typically act as a really important channel of and a sort of feedback loop for the government who aren't aren't necessarily as in touch with the public. But basically this Downing Street has decided to bypass that. And then time after time, individual backbenchers, particularly in, in red wall seats that have only recently gone blue, they feel like they haven't been listened to and they're dealt a really difficult hand trying to sell certain policies to their voters, which are really, really unpopular, having to defend these, expending political capital on defending them, only for the government to then eventually U-turn to the, to the position that they should have had all along. That's why, actually, you, you know, we, we were talking briefly last week about the end of the ban on, on evictions, which was due to come in. And I just thought that they, they couldn't possibly afford another error like that. So all they've done is push that decision back a month. So it's a, a mini U-turn. They haven't really resolved any of the problems there, but they're kind of sparing themselves any sort of controversy for another month because they have just made so many of these problems in recent weeks mm. that they can't really afford anymore. In general, to conclude, if this were an essay question, in general, U-turns fine, good, but you know, at this rate, very, very bad. <laughs> Symptomatic of bigger problems in your party <laughs> management. Yes, I think I think I agree with that, but I also think the main the main danger of a government U-turning all the time. Yes, it says a lot about their poor party management, but I also think that it's bad in terms of public trust. So during the um, the stories about reopening schools, which were which have been a big theme this week, I was speaking to some parents, one of whom has been shielding. They were unsure about their son returning to school. And, you know, one of the things that they were saying was, oh, well, you know, now all of the science, the government scientists and ministers are saying it's more dangerous for children to be out of school than than in school and actually there's no you know sort of playing down any any danger of of children going back to school spreading the virus or leading to a second wave and you know I'm not a scientist I don't know whether that's true or not but what was interesting was these parents were saying well they're probably only saying that aren't they it's probably just politics because they want people to send their children back to school and I think it's that attitude because the government is always flip-flopping around and changing its opinion and then blaming it on, not blaming it, but but attributing it to following the science, that means that people who are trying to do the best for their families and trying to get through this incredibly difficult and confusing time no longer trust what they're hearing, even if what, what the government are saying in this instance is correct. There's that breaking down and breaking down and gradual sort of degrading of of the discourse that we hear from our politicians because one day they're saying one thing and the next day they're saying something else. And that that's that's very damaging because that feeds into the politicians tell you what you want to hear or politicians lie kind of narrative that you sometimes hear on the doorstep when you're um, on the campaign trail during elections. And that's bad for democracy. So, you know, even if they are reverting to positions that I might believe in ideologically, I still don't think it's good for the 
for the for the greater good for a for a government to operate like this. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.